Welcome to the Modern Federalist. Your compass in the world of politics, policy, and people. We're here to challenge norms, question narratives, and offer balanced insight on pressing issues. Your host, Charlton Allen, is a seasoned analyst and a staunch advocate for freedom. With his sharp intellect, he'll guide you through the maze of contemporary politics. Whether you're a political enthusiast or just a curious observer, you've found your haven. This is the Modern Federalist. Welcome to the revolution. The revolution. Welcome, friends, to another episode of The Modern Federalist. I'm your host, Charlton Allen. We've got a lot on our plate, so let's dive right in. First, we're shining a spotlight on a recent report by the Heritage Foundation. This report delves into the important issue of foreign influence in America's universities, a topic we've discussed before and we will continue to explore. Next, we'll be discussing a recent commentary by Jake Fogelman with the Independence Institute, a Colorado-based think tank. Jake has some compelling thoughts on the urgent need for regulatory reform in the American energy sector. And speaking of energy, we'll be examining a recent act of vandalism at the University of Texas at Austin, perpetrated by climate activists. We'll discuss why this act was misguided and counterproductive. And that's no bull. From there, we'll move on to a follow-up on the Super Bowl and its aftermath, including the tragic shootings that occurred at the Chiefs' victory parade. We'll also discuss the RFK Jr. ad that ran during the big game and what it means for the broader conversation. Finally, we have an exclusive interview with John Malcolm, one of the foremost scholars on our American Constitution. We'll be discussing the pending case before the United States Supreme Court on appeal from the state of Colorado regarding the effort to disqualify former President Donald Trump from that state's ballot and potentially other states. So saddle up, friends, for another enlightening ride with the modern Federalists. Let's roll. this segment, we're going to delve into a critical issue that's been making headlines and raising eyebrows in the world of higher education, foreign influence on American universities. It's not really a new topic on this show. We've talked about it before. We're going to continue to raise these issues because the importance to our national security and the integrity of our institutions of higher learning are paramount. A recent report by the Heritage Foundation titled Protecting American Universities from Undue Foreign Influence sheds light on this complex issue. The report highlights the significant role that foreign funding plays in shaping our institutions of higher learning. To give you an idea of the scale, American colleges and universities have disclosed a staggering $40.2 billion in foreign funding since 1981, with $1.1 billion reported in 2021 alone. But these numbers might just be the tip of the iceberg, given the lax disclosure enforcement by the United States Department of Education. 
Now, you might be wondering, why does this matter? Well, our universities play a crucial role in shaping, for lack of a better term, what you could call elite culture, and also ideas that ultimately influence policy and policymakers. More than that, our nation's research universities play a critical role in the development of new technology and learning in such diverse areas as pharmaceuticals and national defense technological development. So any foreign entity seeking to sway these roles currently faces relatively few restrictions on their ability to do so. Now let's talk about China. The People's Republic of China, the PRC, has been using research universities as a conduit to acquire national security information and intellectual property. The Chinese Communist Party entices or compels some individuals to engage in coercive, deceptive, or illegal activity. One of the ways China has been doing this is through the Thousand Talents Program. This is a program by the Chinese government to recruit experts in science and technology from abroad. The plan offers scientists funding and support to commercialize their research, and in return, the Chinese government gains access to their technologies. The effects of this program have been most pronounced in fields such as biology, medicine, and chemistry, which often require expensive equipment and large numbers of people to conduct research. The report from Heritage suggests several measures to mitigate this influence. These include enforcing transparency requirements, lowering reporting thresholds, and requiring the disclosure of funding from sources that may threaten American interests and even prohibiting direct and indirect giving from foreign individuals, entities, and governments located in countries of concern. In conclusion, the Thousand Talents Plan represents a significant threat to our national security and our economic vitality. It's crucial that we remain vigilant and take necessary measures to safeguard our intellectual property. And that includes requiring American universities to fully and clearly disclose the funding sources that are coming from nations that may be adverse to our American interests. After all, the future of American higher education and policymaking could very well depend on it. More than that, our freedom could very well depend on it as well. point, I'm diving into an intriguing opinion piece by Jake Fogelman of the Independence Institute, a Colorado-based think tank. The article, titled To Reclaim American Energy Dominance, Reign in the Administrative State, discusses the need for substantive regulatory reform to fully harness the potential of our American energy center. Fogelman makes a compelling case for eliminating Byzantine regulations that, while well-intentioned, often accomplish little substantive good and can even harm our energy independence. He argues these complex regulations stifle innovation and hinder the growth of the energy sector. Now, let's be clear. Reasonable regulations are necessary. Such regulations can ensure safety, protect the environment, and maintain fair competition. But when regulations become too complex or burdensome, they can do more harm than good. They create barriers to entry, discourage investment in, and slow down the pace of innovation. 
Vogelman suggests that by simplifying these regulations, we can unlock the full potential of the American energy sector. This doesn't mean a free-for-all. It means smart, streamlined regulations that protect consumers and the environment while also promoting growth and innovation. And let's not forget the bigger picture here. Energy independence isn't just about economics. It's about national security. By reducing our reliance on foreign energy sources, we can enhance our national security and assert our global leadership. So, as we move forward, let's keep this in mind. Regulatory reform isn't just about cutting red tape. It's about unleashing the power of American innovation, securing our energy independence, and building a stronger, more prosperous future for all of our citizens. In this segment, I want to discuss a recent incident at the University of Texas at Austin. Some folks there decided to redecorate the campus with spray paint, demanding the university divest from fossil fuels. That's a colorful way to protest, but more importantly, it's illegal. Here's a fun fact. Spray paint isn't exactly environmentally friendly. So while these vandals are advocating for the environment, they're also contributing to the environment's degradation. That's what you could call a plot twist. And let's not forget about the cleanup. The irony here is just too good to pass up. These folks are so concerned about the environment, yet they've left a trail spray paint that's going to require a cleanup, which, by the way, will no doubt have a carbon footprint. Seems like these vandals are full of more than just hot air. Now on to the main point these vandals seem to have missed. The University of Texas, like most Texas schools and also Oklahoma schools, is heavily leveraged in and dependent upon the energy sector. It's like telling a cow to stop producing milk. It just doesn't work that way. Speaking of cows, it's almost as if these vandals are asking Bevo, the beloved Longhorn mascot, to trade in his lush pasture for a concrete parking lot. That's a tough sell, friends. In all seriousness, this is a classic example of trying to bully an institution into submission. It's like trying to milk a cash cow while simultaneously scaring it off the pasture. It just doesn't work that way. So to all the vandals out there, here's a piece of advice. If you want to make a difference, try engaging in productive dialogue instead of resorting to destructive actions. After all, as the saying goes, you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. And to end on a lighter note, remember, folks, the eyes of Texas are upon you. So let's make sure our actions reflect the spirit of that great state. In the spirit of the energy sector that fuels so much of Texas, including the University of Texas, let's remember that it takes more than hot air to power progress. It takes dialogue, respect, and a whole lot of Texas spirit. So here's to harnessing that energy for good on and off the 40 acres. Until next time, keep those longhorn spirits high and those spray cans low or even better out of sight. A big tip of the hat to Megan Burton and the College Fix for bringing this story out to the open range. Till the next segment, partner.
of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world. She walks into mine, listening to the modern Federalist. Now that's a dame with taste. This is Charlton Allen's world. We're just living in it. The Modern Federalist Podcast, hosted by Charlton Allen. Find us today where you get your podcasts. Now, if you listened to our last episode, you might remember a certain Super Bowl prediction. Yes, yours truly called it. The Chiefs took home the victory thanks to the last-minute heroics of none other than Patrick Mahomes. The man thrives on the big stage, doesn't he? And let's not forget the Taylor Swift sightings. If you were playing a drinking game based on how many times she appeared on your screen, well, I hope you had a lot of water on hand the next day. But let's be clear, this isn't about patting myself on the back. Calling a close game and picking the Chiefs wasn't exactly a leap into the unknown. What was truly unfortunate and deeply saddening were the shootings that happened at the victory parade. Our thoughts and prayers go out to those who were lost or harmed by these senseless acts of violence. Now on to a lighter note, but an important one. Travis Kelsey, if you're listening, here's a little PR 101 for you. When your city is mourning, maybe it's not the best time to be out partying. Remember, when you step into the spotlight, you're illuminating your whole life, not just the parts and the times you want people to see. After all, the game of life is about more than just winning. Let's take another moment to talk about the Super Bowl. Not the game, but one ad in particular that caught everyone's attention. Yes, I'm talking about the ad promoting the candidacy of RFK Jr. This wasn't just any ad. It was simple, creative, and perfectly retro, borrowing wholesale from the ad of RFK Jr.'s uncle, President John F. Kennedy, from the 1960 presidential race. It was one of the few, if not the only, Super Bowl ad that made everyone sit up and pay careful attention. But as we all know, every action has a reaction, and this ad was no exception. It was followed by the reflexive reaction of the various Kennedy family members entrenched in Democrat Party circles. RFK Jr. acknowledged this in a post on X, noting that the ad was independent from his campaign. But here's where it gets interesting. While making this rhetorical apology, the ad was his pinned post. Intentionally clever? I can't say for sure. But it was a flourish, and for a political ad, it made its point. And here we are, still talking about it. And the short attention spans of the American body politic, that in and of itself is quite an accomplishment. Remember, Liberty's flame burns brightest in the darkest hours. Stay tuned to the Modern Federalist. Welcome back to The Modern Federalist. Our next guest is John Malcolm, a leading voice in constitutional governance and the rule of law. As vice president of the Institute for Constitutional Government, he oversees the Heritage Foundation's important work to increase understanding of our Constitution and the rule of law. Mr. Malcolm's legal experience spans both the public and private sectors. 
He served as a Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the United States Department of Justice's Criminal Division, where he oversaw sections on computer crime and intellectual property, domestic security, child exploitation and obscenity, and special investigations. He also served as Executive Vice President and Director of Worldwide Anti-Piracy Operations for the Motion Picture Association of America. A graduate of Harvard Law School, Mr. Malcolm's research and writing has been focused on criminal law, immigration, national security, religious liberty, and intellectual property. John Malcolm is a champion of our Constitution, and we're very fortunate to have him on this episode. We will be discussing the recent litigation on appeal from the state of Colorado regarding the ballot qualification of former President Donald Trump. Mr. Malcolm, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. It's good to be with you. We'd like to talk a little bit about Trump versus Anderson. I know you have been closely following the progress of this case from Colorado. What were your thoughts about yesterday's argument before the United States Supreme Court? Well, I, I think it was a very good day for former President Trump. I, it's usually perilous to try to predict the outcome of a case based on the oral argument. But I, I think it was pretty clear and that there are at least five votes and quite possibly nine votes to reverse the Colorado Supreme Court and allow former President Trump to remain uh, on the ballot. Uh, you know, there were a number of arguments that uh, Mr. Trump's lawyer, Jonathan Mitchell, made that appeared to resonate with the the justices. Uh, the first one being that a president is not an officer uh, of the United States, as that phrase is used in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, that that phrase refers to appointed officials and not elected officials. A second uh, argument that appeared to resonate with them is that Section 3 is not self-executing, that the states can't just sort of come up and try to answer whether or not an insurrection occurred and someone participated in an insurrection without some direction from Congress in the form of implementing legislation that sets forth the procedure that to be used, the standards that are to be used, the definition of an insurrection. Uh, and then the, the third thing that was quite clear is that all of the justices had a lot of questions for uh, the, um, the, uh, the, the people who were supporting throwing Trump off of the ballot, their lawyer, Jason Murray, saying, okay, if this is, is self-executing, and states get to make this decision, how are we to deal with, you know, 50 different states and the District of Columbia, so in other words, all jurisdictions that have electoral college votes, coming up with their own definitions of what an insurrection is, using their own standards of procedure, their own standards about what evidence to admit in, to make individual determinations about who should qualify and who should be di disqualified from appearing on a ballot. That, it seemed pretty obvious to the justice, would lead to mayhem and electoral chaos. Uh, and Mr. Murray, try as hard as he might, I do not think came back uh, with an answer that was very satisfying to the justices. It essentially said, this is federalism in action. You should let the states take a whack at this and then do the best you can on, uh, on appeal when these things reach you. I do not think they found that very satisfying. Another interesting argument. Uh, so Mr. Mitchell said, uh, look, there is a reason why this provision applied to 
congressmen, senators, presidential electors, state and local officials, and appointed uh, officers, but not to the president and the vice president. And that's because those are the only two people who are elected nationally at the time that uh, the 14th Amendment came into being. It was right in the aftermath of the Civil War. And the concern was not really whether Jefferson Davis could somehow be elected president of the United States. It was that the Confederate states would try to elect former rebels, which in fact they did, to state judgeships, state uh, legislative positions, and to Congress. So Alexander Stevens, the former vice president of the Confederacy, was elected to Congress. They wanted to prevent that in the absence of essentially a pardon being issued by both houses of Congress. There's a provision in the 14th Amendment for that. They did take some steps to make it dramatically unlikely that an insurrectionist would be uh, chosen as president in that they barred presidential electors who had served, uh, who had you know participated in insurrection from serving as electors. And so they, they figured, look, if we end up getting presidential electors, none of whom was inv- engaged in an insurrection, the likelihood that all of these qualified electors would somehow choose an insurrectionist as president seemed extremely remote to them uh, at the time. Jonathan Mitchell said we're making that argument, but you know we're not really pushing it because there, there is an argument on the other side. And strangely enough, it was Justice Katanji Brown Jackson who said, well, I really think that that's a pretty strong argument, and I'm not quite sure why you're not pushing it. Uh, she said that both to Mr. Mitchell and to Mr. Murray. That is interesting. And it's also interesting that, uh, as you noted, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment doesn't specifically mention the office of president nor the office of vice president, despite the fact it goes into detail about electors for president. I wanted to ask a question about this uh, self-executing issue. As I understand it, what is expected is that with the, this constitutional amendment, the Congress would have to pass legislation to provide for to someone who is potentially subject to the insurrectionist language in section, section three. And that hasn't happened in this case, correct? Yes and no. Uh, so a year after the 14th Amendment was ratified, Chief Justice Salmon Chase wrote an opinion He was not sitting actually as a Supreme Court justice. At that time, Supreme Court justices used to, quote unquote, ride the circuit and sit as circuit court judges. So he was sitting in another district as a circuit court judge. And he wrote uh, in a a case called Inree Griffin, in which uh, a former Confederate uh, fighter had become uh, a state court judge and had sentenced somebody who, who had been convicted of a crime And the gentleman came forward and said, this guy had no right to sentence me because he was not qualified to be a judge because he had violated Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And at that time, Chief Justice Salmon said, no, this is not a self-executing provision. It requires an act of Congress. Uh, It is really the federal government that gets to decide who is qualified and not qualified, uh, not (laughs) the former Confederate states. Congress then, shortly thereafter, actually did pass a statute that set up these procedures. Uh, Then issued uh, amnesty provisions for all people who had been previously 
who previously fought on behalf of the Confederacy or been uh, sympathizers to the Confederate cause. And that statute, that implementing statute that Congress passed was eventually repealed. So there is no broad implementing statute. There is, however, a pre-existing criminal provision that is still in place. It's Title 18, uh, United States Code, Section 2383. It's a a criminal insurrection provision. And it says basically that if you are charged and convicted of having been an insurrectionist, that you not only are, are now a convicted felon, but you are disqualified from running for future office. And that would include the presidency. Donald Trump has not been convicted of, in fact, hasn't even been charged with violating that provision. The closest we have is that it was uh, involved in the second impeachment proceeding. The article of impeachment that the House approved did talk about engaging in a conspiracy to participate in an insurrection. But of course, he was acquitted of that charge by the United States Senate. That's an interesting point there. I I was also intrigued by the comments that you've made and also some of the stories I've read about this particular case. When it came up from the Colorado Supreme Court, it was a 4-3 decision, and all yep. seven of the appointees on the Colorado Supreme Court were appointed by Democrat governors. And of course, we have a typically polarized United States Supreme Court, but there seemed to be, at least in reading through the tea leaves of the questioning, it, it may not be a 6-3 vote. Is that your read as well? Yeah, I don't think it's going to be a 6-3 to three vote. As I said, there are at least five justices to overturn, in my opinion, and it could well be all nine. I, I, I certainly got the impression that Justice Selena Kagan and Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson were highly skeptical of the um, of the arguments being made by Mr. Murray on behalf of the Anderson uh, folks who want Trump off of the ballot. Justice Sotomayor asked tough questions to both sides, a little bit harder to read on that. It would not at all surprise me if this was uh, an eight to one decision or a nine to nothing decision. It would be very surprising to me, actually, if this was a five to four or 63 decision. What do you make of the argument that they are protecting democracy by trying to limit Trump's eligibility and limit the ability of voters to actually choose him as their candidate of choice? Doesn't it seem like that is a ironic argument, if nothing else? Yes, it is an ironic argument that uh, the way to protect democracy is to pounce the leading contender for the Republican nomination and a former president off of the ballot. I suppose what they say would say is they are protecting democracy and decent people from the, being in the clutches of an insurrectionist. Uh, but yes, it does a little bit. Uh, it does seem a little bit strange when when some Democrats, including the current president of the United States, says, you know, this is. Donald Trump is a threat to democracy while at the same time they're trying to bounce him off of the ballot. How do you see this case ultimately playing out here? There are several schools of thought of how it could could uh, be resolved. One is, of course, uh, the plaintiffs in the original Colorado case prevail on all their claims and Trump is removed from the ballot. The right. other is it's just you know completely denied. But isn't there the possibility that the Supreme Court kicks the can down the road here? They could. 
they could do it, I think, in at, at least two ways immediately come to mind. One is they could say, well, the states can decide these issues, but we think that this proceeding was so truncated that it deprived Donald Trump of due process. So go back and try again. And you other 49 states in the District of Columbia, you should go back and try again too. That would be one way to kick the can down the road. The other way, which got a lot of questions actually from the justices, is they said, you know, he's being disqualified from the ballot for supposedly violating Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. But Section 3 of the 14th Amendment only says that a, disqualify, a person is disqualified from holding office. It doesn't mean that they're disqualified from running for office uh, because, of course, that they might lose or they might win and then be disqualified or they might win and both houses of Congress by a two-thirds vote might decide to overlook that disqualification. That is specifically included uh, in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And that is, in fact, what both houses of Congress did in two different amnesty bills to release from that disqualification people who had served or supported the Confederacy. So, in effect, we may not know if they go down that road until conceivably January 6th of next year. Yeah, but I don't think that's going to happen. I think the justices are aware of this. I, I think that they found, based on the questions and the arguments, the argument that this does require some act of Congress, some implementing legislation, or equally, if not more powerful, the argument that this provision simply does not apply to the president of the United States. He is not an officer uh, of the United States, that that only refers to appointed officials, and, and that would settle the issue. Then he, he would both be on the ballot, and if elected, he would be qualified to serve. Any other takeaways that you would have from Trump versus Anderson for our listeners today? No, other than I was uh, surprised that there weren't fewer lifelines to uh, tossed by the Democratic appointed justices to, to Mr. Murray. Uh, and I expect that the court, because we are now on the election season is underway and ballots are being printed, uh, I expect that we will get uh, by Supreme Court standards a lightning fast decision. I certainly think we'll get something by Super Tuesday. It would not surprise me if we got something by the end of February. Very well. Thank you so much, Mr. Malcolm, for joining us today. My pleasure. Good being with you. that's a wrap for today's episode of The Modern Federalist. A big thank you to our guest, John Malcolm, for his enlightening insights. And of course, we'll have links to all the articles discussed in the episode notes. If those don't play well with your particular podcast platform, you're always welcome to check out our webpage at modernfederalistpodcast.com. We're a month into this podcast, and it's been a whole lot of fun for me, and I hope for you, the listeners. We've received an overwhelming response thus far, and we're looking at ways to expand and provide more episodes. If you enjoyed this program, we'd appreciate it if you could like, share, subscribe, and rate the program. Your support helps us continue this conversation 
and spread our message of constitutional liberty as a beacon for our great republic and beyond. Thank you for joining us on this enlightening ride today. Till next time, let's keep the conversation going. Until we meet again, this is Charlton Allen for The Modern Federalist, signing off. Thanks for tuning in to The Modern Federalist. Don't forget to subscribe for more thought-provoking episodes. Until next time.